Hello, I'm Evan Novi Williams. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports Podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today we begin with baseball, but not the MLB. Let's talk baseball in Taiwan. The game's underway in full swing there. And Evan, maybe Major League Baseball can take some cues from what we're seeing in Taiwan. Yeah, guys, let's start with some optimism on a on a Monday morning. The Taiwanese Baseball League just finished the first week of its regular season. It is having games uh, without fans. There are mannequins. There are robot drummers. There are cheerleaders. <laughs> but there is baseball. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's obviously a very different situation in Taiwan, virus-wise, related to what's happening here in the U.S., but the idea that a league that was supposed to start in March, which had to delay its start because of the virus, is now up and running and having some success, I think probably makes you know Major League Baseball owners and probably owners in all of the major North American leagues a little excited. Mike Lynch, kind of, what are your takeaways from the fact that Taiwan delayed its season, got it up and running, seems to be doing it in a healthy way, and is now a week through its regular season? Well, my first thought was that I can only assume that the happiest people are the umpires, because nobody is booing them or questioning any of their calls. <laughs> unless, unless we can add, add voices to those cardboard cutouts. And what do you do if you're the home team? Do you put more cardboard cutouts on the home team side behind their dugout as opposed to the other dugouts? <laughs> One thing we should point out here is that there, there's very few cases, apparently, of, of uh, COVID-19 uh, in Taiwan uh, compared to other places around the world. And I think that's why they, they got the jump start on everybody. But I, I think there's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned here. I still, uh, and I voiced this before, uh, the social distancing, You have there's always a, a crowd at home plate between the umpire, the catcher, and the batter. And then when a first baseman is holding on uh, a runner at first base, you know, you've sort of, uh, you lose your social distancing there. But uh, other than that, I think it's a pretty good idea. Uh, they, they, they pipe in um, uh, music, as you said, and they have robots banging on drums, and they allow the cheerleaders to come in, mascots, even the media allowed into the games. Yeah, and so, you know, when you look at one of these games between the players, the umpires, the cheerleaders, media, you said cameramen, etc., staff for the ballpark, it sounds like there's about 150 to 200 people in the building at one time during a game, which is, you know, probably a fairly manageable one to do a little more detail. The idea of, you know, all the U.S. leagues are talking about holding their sport in a bubble, you know, the NBA going to, to Vegas, Major League Baseball going to the desert in Arizona. That is not what, what the Taiwan Baseball League is doing. The, the players are living at home. They're allowed to do that. Uh, there's no, you know, day-by-day testing. Uh, they are, you know, there's some restrictions on what these players can do when they're on the road, obviously, because they don't want to maybe contaminate city by city. But for the most part, these players are living kind of normal lives. Uh, and one big caveat, which again is is the big worry for North American sports leagues, if one player tests positive, or I'm sure if one coach or one umpire tests positive, the entire Taiwanese Baseball League is going to grind to a halt for at least a two-week period, right? So, so they are always one mistake, one bad situation away from the thing coming coming to a grinding halt. Um, but Michael, you know, we are, as, as Mike Lynch said, you know, the, the, the situation with the virus in, in Taiwan is, is way more under control than it is here, uh, here in the U.S. Um, but 
again, do you do you think that there is, uh, if you're Major League Baseball, how closely do you think you're watching not just the fact that they're doing this, but the little things like, you know, the the music being played, the, the robot drummers, the mannequins in the stands, just the way they're presenting the game as well? Well, when you said there were like about 200 people in the building, I was thinking, well, that's a Tigers game from last season. But it, no, anyway, uh, <laughs> New, York, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he said this, and, and this can happen. He said, yeah, this could be a thing. Uh, he said this during one of his uh, press briefings. He said, yes, be creative, try to figure it out. But he said if owners, if players can get paid more, than staying at home, and the owners will get some revenue versus total shutdown. Why not, Evan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and these teams, you know, they're selling, you know, they're they're selling better English broadcasting rights. I think they're getting more international fans than they ever have, just because they're the only things playing. One more kind of piece of cold water, just to put in perspective: the Taiwanese Baseball League is four teams. Their regular season is a two hundred and forty games, I believe. Major League Baseball, obviously, thirty teams, more than twenty four hundred regular season game. So obviously the scale is very different, but there's certainly optimism to see baseball being played elsewhere. Um, and that kind of transitions, Michael, well to our next topic uh, about one of the first U.S. North American leagues that's probably going to be back in action. Yeah, let's talk about mixed martial arts and the ultimate fighting championship there, keeping going throughout all this uncertainty. Edmund, what do you think about all of this? Yeah, so UFC, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about their kind of failed attempt to end around regulators to host events at a, at, in tribal land in California. The new plan right now certainly feels a, a bit more realistic, uh, is, to, is to have three events, May 9th, May 13th, and May 16th, all in Florida at an arena in Jacksonville. Um, again, this is not a kind of a skirt around any regulations. They will be, you know, conducting everything within the bounds of what Florida is allowed to do. Remember, you know, Florida was the first state and I believe the only one right now to say that professional sports were an essential business. Uh, so, so no coincidence that UFC ended up there. Uh, but Mike Lynch, we were, I think all of us kind of fairly critical about this plan for UFC to do this in, in tribal land a few weeks ago in California. How do we feel about, you know, them deciding that Florida is a place to do it where they have the the okay of regulators and local government? I don't think it really makes any difference because, I mean, our number one concern is these guys are, you know, obviously they're just body contact the entire time that they're that they're fighting with each other. And it's just a question of like they found a place where they get permission to do it by the the state uh, categorizing, as you said, entertainment workers as essential. Um, I know they're going to take temperature checks. There'll be medical screening, et cetera, et cetera. The big thing here is it just sounds so desperate to me because unlike other professional athletes who have uh, guaranteed contracts, these UFC fighters, if they don't compete, they don't get paid. So I think a lot of them are very desperate right now, not only to compete, but also to get paid. And they found someplace... Um, it's kind of like when you've when you've got the, some diagnosis with with the doctor. You keep going to five or six different doctors to hear the diagnosis that you want to hear, whether whether or not it's the, it's the right hmm. right diagnosis or the or truth or not. This is what this seems to me that they're from, they're going someplace all over the planet to find some place that that says it's okay. You can do this here. I would argue that there there is also probably a little bit of desperation from the owners of UFC. You know, we've talked yeah. on the podcast, you know, in the past that when when UFC was sold for 4 billion dollars to 
Endeavor, uh, Silver Lake, and KKR, Endeavor took on a, a pretty significant amount of debt to make that transaction happen. And in good times, when, when UFC is up and running, you know, it spins off a lot of cash to pay for that debt service. At times when it's not, you know, that, that puts Endeavor in a, in a tight situation. And, and UFC has these, these big ESPN deals. I believe there's three of them. One's a streaming deal, one's a linear television deal, and one is a pay-per-view deal, all with ESPN. And when you combine them, UFC essentially has to give, I believe it's 42 events a year to ESPN to satisfy that contract. You know, they, they play, I think, believe they had eight events, then everything went on hold. I don't know how many weeks there are left in the year, but it's probably in the mid thirties. They're kind of running up against that number already right now. I think that's one of the reasons why when they do these events in Florida in May, there's three in a week, you know, May 19th, May 13th, May 16th. They're going to cram some of these in, in the same way that I would expect Major League Baseball to have a lot of double headers, just because a lot of these media contracts exist with minimum games that are required. Uh, so, so I think that's one of the reasons why uh, you're going to see that. Michael, what do you think of as the opportunity here for UFC? Let's say May 9th rolls around, you know, we're not going to have NBA, we're not going to have NHL, we're not going to have uh, Major League Baseball. UFC could be again the only game in town as they were I believe that 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 big weekend in in March after everything else shut down what's the opportunity here if they can do this in a smart and safe way what's the opportunity here for UFC forgive the vernacular but they can get paid big time because they will be the only game in town the number one revenue not only for UFC but for any major sport it's the media rights, the money, money, money. You got to have a product to televise. If you have something, people will watch it. They will. And as uh, Mark Cuban had said uh, a few days ago, when he talked about not having fans in the stands, it's still a made-for-TV event if you televise it. And that's the same thing. It's going to be for UFC and and mixed martial arts. People will watch it. No, oh, I, I agree. Yeah. And, and, and Mike Lynch, you had mentioned the, the athletes themselves. You know, we heard from Happy Walters, NBA agent on the podcast last week, that, that NBA players are also itching to play. I think there is kind of, you know, not all of them, but a lot of athletes who are sitting at home right now who are thinking about, you know, their financial futures and their financial currents uh, are all also, I think, kind of aligned with their commissioners with the with the owners of their leagues with the executives in their leagues all kind of trying to get back to this sense of normalcy one other thing i will add before we move on you know we talked about the 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 taiwanese baseball league 150 to 200 people in a stadium at a time one of the benefits to ufc is that they can do this with significantly fewer numbers i think if you include the fighters their trainers and then all the staff you know media um, you know, cameramen, I, I believe that they feel like they can do these UFC fights with, with maybe 75 people total or even less, you know, so there is, you know, it's a, it's a much bit fewer ask. It's less personnel than even what you're seeing in, in Taiwan right now. Finally, there could be a merger in the world of tennis. Evan, it looks like some remarks from Roger Federer are adding fuel to that fire. Yeah, so there, there's there's been conversation really for decades. I think Billie Jean King was talking about this in the '70s. This idea of of merging, you know, the business interests of, of men's and women's tennis. Right now, there there are two fully separate tours: the ATP for the men and the WTA for the women. Uh, but Roger Federer, who is obviously a, a a loud voice within the tennis world, someone who holds a lot of sway, uh, put this out on Twitter. Uh, last week, just kind of tossed it out there. Hey, maybe it's time to think about, you know, or, or get a little bit 
more serious about potentially merging the two things. Immediately, a number of players, Rafael Nadal, uh, Simona Halep, Petra Kvitova, Billie Jean King, a lot of people you know, chimed in and said, I agree, I think this is a good idea. Uh, certainly one of those things that the more you dive into the details, the, the, the harder it kind of is to see it happen. But Mike Lynch, you know, we're in this time where all sports are struggling financially. Tennis is definitely on on the higher end, I think, of that list in terms of you know sports, you know, globally that are, that are really struggling. Uh, is do you think there's a chance that you know because of the, just the tough times that we're in right now, we may see spur to action on an idea that's been bounced around for decades, but no one has ever, you know, kind of fully taken to the finish line. Well, it sort of reminds me of what happened to boxing when we used to just have the heavyweight, middleweight, lightweight champion of the world. And then we went to the WBA, the WBC, the AFL-CIO. I mean, there were just so many different categories for, for, for boxing champions. It was so confusing. And tennis is a little bit like this now. We you know, we've uh, where do you go to watch the Davis Cup or the FedEx, the Fed Cup and it's a WTA event, an ATP event. And, you know, I think if they, if they could simplify uh, a, a merger and simplify their TV contracts, uh, you'd have to satisfy the sponsors. And again, it's going to come down to eyeballs. Are there more eyeballs on the men's uh, competition or in the women's competition? Now, we all know what a great show it is in the four major events with Wimbledon, Australian, French, and U.S. Opens. Uh, but, but some of the other events, uh, they're all split up. It's a men's tournament or it's a women's tournament. And it's going to come down to uh, to sponsors, it's going to come down to the TV contract, and now they're talking about having equal prize money, which obviously is is a spectacular idea. But will the sponsors go for it? That's the big question. Yeah. So you you just hit on the the reason why it hasn't happened, or the main reason why it hasn't happened yet is that the ATP, the men's tour, is a much bigger commercial property than the women's tour, you know, if, if you add in all the, not just the big events, but also the, the, the weekly events as well. And, and I think the ATP has kind of historically balked at the idea of some kind of merger in which it was using its own resources to prop up the women's game. Uh, and I think there's kind of two levels here, one of which being, there's definitely a way to streamline this so this is a better experience for fans. Right, The ATP and the WTA have two different logos, they have two different websites, they have two different ranking systems, their rules are different, You know, there's in-match coaching in the WTA but not on the ATP, uh, they play separately most events each, each week. Uh, there's a lot in there that I think maybe confuses fans, maybe makes the barrier to entry a little bigger. And also, you know, I think maybe, you know, you add leverage if you're you're negotiating as one kind of all powerful tennis entity versus what you're doing right now. And then the second tier, which is obviously the more complicated one is if you're going to host, you're going to do events together all the time. That either means the event needs to be Every event needs to be twice as big or suddenly it's half as many men's players and women's players at each event, which obviously affects the prize money. My guess is if you were to poll the ATP players, the ones who are not Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal are probably the ones who are a little more wary of this because they're worried about maybe what it means for for them kind of fighting on the bubble every week. Um, Michael, you know, going back to that part about fans, do you think there's a point there to be made that, that if you make tennis maybe a little less confusing make it just a one-stop shop for fans that, that that it might actually drive some revenue oh yeah and and i one thing i've never understood and you when you bring this up out of all of the female sports that are out there the major ones i always thought tennis superseded all those other sports in terms of 
people getting eyeballs to to watch it. I it's it seems like this idea is something that is long overdue. There would definitely be an audience. And yes, you're going to have tournaments where you're not going to have fans in the stands. It's going to be like that for a while with a lot of sports. But I, I always thought that this should have happened. I think Roger Federer had the right idea. Yeah, and you make make a good point when you kind of look at the highest paid women women's athletes in the world. The list is always dominated by female tennis players. You know, they are, as you said, they're, they're front and center in the sports world and, and, and the sports zeitgeist more so than almost any other female athletes out there. And there are times, you know, certainly at big events often where the women's game outdraws from a, from a rating standpoint, the men's one. I think the, the big problem is that when you get, you know, outside of the U.S. Open, outside of the French Open, outside of Wimbledon, you know, the, the smaller events commercially are just so much bigger when it's a men's event uh, versus a women's event. But yes, again, I, I think the, the big question here is, is how much the coronavirus is going to affect the business here. And as a result, you know, how, how much it might actually push to the forefront ideas that under normal circumstances never would have happened. But because of, you know, the unfortunate situation that, you know, all these administrators and executives find themselves in, uh, they, they might get pushed forward now. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Mike Lynch and Evan Novi williams We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world. And subscribe to the Bloomberg Business of Sports show wherever you get your podcasts. 